First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Father, you've given us government to curb evil, and you've given the church the responsibility to pray for government. And so we want to lift up our president to you today as he leads this great nation, that you would give him wisdom, that you would surround him with godly counsel that would be consistent with your word. We think of our Congress that is so divided, many over moral issues. We ask in this new year that you would frustrate the plans of the godless and that your ways might be proclaimed and sought. We know that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We pray for this church. We thank you for the witness, the candlestick that you've given us to shine in this community. May it never be taken away. May we be faithful until Jesus returns. Thank you for the love of the Spirit that has been poured out into our hearts, how he has bound us and brought us together from so many different backgrounds and made us a family. And we pray for our families, for those dads that have little ones at home, teenagers, who are shaping their lives and trying to bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. May they listen to the keen counsel of their wives. May they together lead their family in the midst of a godless generation, help older men and women with their grandchildren or with younger couples, as you've commanded older men to teach younger men, older women to teach younger women. May they be faithful in that task. And help me, Father, today. Thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We pray that sin would not block it, that we would receive it as James admonishes us in a clean heart. Give us ears to hear and more than just to hear. May we be changed through the power of your word. Thank you for what you call the foolishness of preaching how it changes lives, how it brings men and women and boys and girls into the kingdom. It helps the church to grow. So help me, come fill me and use me today for the glory of Jesus, I pray. And in his holy name, amen. Take God's holy infallible word, would you, and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Now, some of you may be thinking, I must be dreaming, Pastor. Have we really come to the end of the book of Revelation? Some of you thought that it wouldn't be until the millennial reign of the Messiah that I would finish. But we're getting closer, and I suspect that we will be here for at least seven more hours of preaching, seven more sessions together. Now, if you're here for the first Sunday, you'll be interested to know that we've been working our way chapter by chapter, and if Revelation is new to you, you might want to download the Search the Scriptures app. Today, we are in Revelation 22, where we get an inside tour of what heaven is like. Has anyone ever made fun of you for believing in heaven? Perhaps they have told you that believing in heaven is just pie in the sky when you die, an expression that came from a song over 110 years ago, 
making fun of the Salvation Army. Most people don't know the Salvation Army is a denomination. It's generals, so to speak, our pastors who preach the gospel. And they took a popular hymn of the day in the sweet by and by, and they wrote a satirical hymn saying that the Christian concept of heaven was stupid and you're dumb to believe it. And so today the phrase pie in the sky when you die has become an idiom almost for cynicism, something far-fetched, something that really is not to be believed, something that's ridiculous. They say, well, that's pie in the sky or you're pie in the sky. And it has different shades of meaning, but generally it means an idea or a dream that could never, ever happen. Maybe you've shared the gospel. One guy years ago said to me, that's just pie in the sky. That's literally what he said. Well, I happen to like pie, (laughs) and we're just enjoying the appetizer now, and the best is in front of us. Now, sometimes they'll make fun of us, and they'll say, well, Christians are so heavenly-minded, there are no earthly good. Actually, just the opposite is true. Many Christians today are so earthly-minded, they are no good to heaven and no good to earth. And so we have much to learn about heaven. God commands us to set our minds on the things above. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and said, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, and every true believer has, positionally, we're seated in the heavenly places. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In similar fashion, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, store up for yourself Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verses like this remind us that God's not interested first in your treasure. He's interested in you. He wants you. God doesn't need anything. God is complete. But we are to set our minds in the things that are above. Why? That the Lord God might capture our heart. Now, heaven is a word that we've seen that is used to describe the eternal state. And most people, when they think of heaven, they think just of, even Christians, of the New Jerusalem, the Father's house, paradise, about ten different titles that is given to the place which a believer goes when he's absent from the body and present with the Lord. And we've been studying that place, but that's just the capital city. That place where your loved ones are today, where Christ will take us, when he raptures the church, becomes the capital city of a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. Now, if you are not here for chapter 21, John gave us, or the angel on behalf for John, gave him a guided tour through heaven. And I did four messages just on that chapter in chapter 22 that we, God willing, will do seven messages on. You really need chapter 21 to get the backdrop of where we're going. So if you miss that, download the Search the Scriptures app and listen to those four messages. And let me just say, today is foundational. It's foundational for the six messages that will follow. Now, let me just say by review that the comparison and contrast between the first book in the Bible and the first chapters in the Bible and the last book in the Bible and the last chapters in the Bible are remarkable. I don't think it is by accident that the two books the devil hates the most is the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. And it's easy to see why he hates Genesis, because his doom is pronounced, and it's easy to see why he hates Revelation, because it's carried out. In fact, when you contrast the first book in the Bible with the last book, 
you see that this is a supernaturally constructed book. Only God could have done this. For example, in the book of Genesis, you see the creation of the first heaven and the first earth. and the Revelation, you see the creation of a new heaven and a new earth as this current earth and universe is destroyed. In Genesis, you see Adam reigning for a short time. In the Revelation, you see Christ reigning for all of eternity, Adam on earth, Christ in glory. In the book of Genesis, the night and the sea are created, but in the Revelation, the Bible says there is no sea and there is no night. In Genesis, Adam has brought a bride. In the Revelation, Christ receives his bride called the church. In Genesis, you see the tree of life in the Garden of Eden which becomes forbidden fruit after man falls. But in the Revelation, in our text today, we will see it again, the tree of life, which men are invited to eat there in the New Jerusalem. In the book of Genesis, you see sin entering into the world that brought death, that brought a curse. But in the Revelation, the Bible says there is no more curse and there's no more death. When Satan appears the very first time, In the book of Revelation, he's seen as a liar. When he appears at the last time in the Revelation, he won't ever be able to lie again, at least not to any of God's people, because he will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. In the beginning of human history, we saw paradise lost, but as you can see, the topic of this morning's message is paradise regained. In the opening chapters of Genesis We find human history beginning in a garden where there's a river and there's a tree of life. And here at the end of time, as we are in the eternal state, we see another river and the tree of life once again. But make no mistake, this is not some circle of life. It's more of a spiral because the paradise of Eden becomes the paradise in heaven, and the two are not even to be compared. Now, with that said... I want us to begin reading our text. We're going to uh, cover just five verses this morning. I hope you bring a Bible. I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a Bible in your laps. Follow along, would you? Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will, be no, and there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, many people find the book of Revelation difficult to understand, and very often I'm asked, is there some key that will help me to understand the book of Revelation? And the answer is, well, actually, there are several keys. As you read Revelation, you discover, obviously, it's filled with signs and symbols, In fact, in Revelation 1-1, the opening verse, it says it is communicated. Uh, The King James says it is signified, as in the margin of the NSB. It is signified, S-I-G-N. In other words, God uses a Greek word, signified or communicated, to describe information that is given symbolically 
or in a figurative way. And so these truths are communicated through symbols. And the symbols, once they are understood, help us to understand the meaning of the book. You say, well, why didn't he just say it without symbols? For good reason. One, it's written to his bondservants, not just to anyone. Two, you have to dig for the meaning of the symbols, and that just causes you to really focus, to meditate, and to get deep into your heart the meaning of the revelation. Now, one careful, most careful students of Scripture recognize that one of the keys to understanding the Revelation is to see how it interfaces with the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in the Revelation. 300 of them are referenced somewhere in the Old Testament. That's 75% of the book. And never once is an Old Testament quotation introduced, Isaiah said, or Moses wrote, or David said. No, it's just dropped in there, and it's woven together as a beautiful mosaic. And so the code for understanding many of the signs and the symbols are found in the Old Testament. Now, sometimes people will call me on the Bible line, and they'll ask, Pastor, do you interpret the Bible symbolically, or do you interpret it literally? And the answer is yes. If it is a symbol, then interpret it as a symbol. But once you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe it. So when the Bible calls Satan a great red dragon, it's a symbol to describe his ferocious, cruel nature. You don't reason, well, since this is a symbol, there must be no devil. No, you understand what the symbol means, and then you literally believe it. And so symbolic, a symbolic interpretation of the Scripture in no way discounts or eliminates a literal belief in God's Word. So here's the point. John is communicating by the Spirit of God and writing it down for us through symbols. And one of the codes to understanding the symbols is to understand the Old Testament or the schematic for the Revelation. God gave a schematic. It's called the book of Daniel. And that's why before we ever open the Revelation, we spent almost a year in the book of Daniel, going through it verse by verse, and the two books fit hand in glove. And sometimes you don't even have to search in the Old Testament. Sometimes you just have to keep reading a few verses, a few paragraphs, and the meaning of the symbol is given in the immediate context. So you will discover the more you study the Bible, it interprets itself, and the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So the first key is to recognize it's largely given in signs and symbols. Most of those signs and symbols are interpreted within the Old Testament or within the context of the book itself. But another critical key is found right in the front door in that God gives you the outline for the revelation so we couldn't mess it up. It's found in Revelation 1 and verse 19. Therefore, John is told, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. John is commanded and commissioned to write down three things. First, write the things that you've seen. And so what did John see? He saw a vision of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus said, write it down. That's what we call the past things. That's chapter 1. Then he is told he is to write the things which are. That refers to the present things, to the church age that is described in verses two, chapters 2 and 3, where John is told in verse 11 of the opening chapter, write a book, what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. 
And if you remember, this book was first written and delivered to these seven churches. And these are actual literal churches with positive aspects and negative aspects. And they are really in many ways representative of the good and the bad that you will find in any church or in any Christian, because any church is the composite of its members, and churches tend to lean in one direction or another. But then he moves to the third section of the book where he is commanded to write the things that will take place after these things. And so when you come to Revelation 4 and verse 1, after these things, metatata, it's repeated twice in the same verse. So you cannot miss it that he is now moving to the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. So beginning in chapter 4, where there's an open door, the church is caught up, we are raptured, and the church is not mentioned again all the way through the great tribulation period. Why? Because we're not here. Christ will come first for His church. He will come for His saints, but at the second coming, as we've learned, He will come back with His saints. And so from chapter 4 all the way through the last chapter that we are in this morning, you're in the prophetic section of the book. And the book of Revelation is largely a book on prophecy. And one of the ways that we know that the Bible is unique, different from the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Upanishads, the Vedas, or any other religious work ever done, is that only the Holy Scripture has fulfilled prophecy. And so God fulfilled over 300 prophecies, literally, actually, for the first coming of His Son, and He will do precisely the same for His second coming. Now, let me set the context to bring you where we are today. Walk your way in your mind. The church is raptured. That's chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see those wonderful songs of praise around the throne of God. The church is rewarded. We are evaluated the Bema seat of Christ. In chapter 5, Christ is handed a scroll, and it's the title deed to the world. And He is going to reclaim what Adam lost. And He is going to do it through a series of 21 judgments that come in seals and trumpets and then bowls. And so beginning in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 18, you see those judgments coming upon the earth. In chapter 19, you see Christ's physical return from heaven to the earth, where at that time He throws the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. He rules and reigns for a thousand years with the devil bound. We pray in the Lord's Prayer. Unfortunately, many Christians today almost mindlessly May your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. That prayer will be fulfilled when Jesus literally, physically, actually comes to rule and reign upon the earth. That is going to happen. What a blessed day. And we see that during this thousand-year period of time, people who have entered the millennial reign in their natural bodies because the church will have been raptured, we'll all be in our resurrected bodies. But during this seven-year period where Jews and Gentiles and untold numbers find Jesus as Lord, people who have never heard the gospel before, people who have heard it prior will be lost. It will be too late for them. But we've learned that those who have never heard it before from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be converted. And those who are not slaughtered and persecuted and beheaded during the tribulation will enter into the millennial reign of the Messiah in their natural bodies. The curse on the creation 
will be temporarily lifted. It will be much like the days of Noah, where people will live like the age of a tree, Isaiah says. They'll have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And we looked at six functions for the thousand-year reign of Christ. I mean, people say, well, why doesn't he just take us to heaven and just end it all? There's a purpose in the millennium. And we looked at six purposes. And one of those purposes is to show really how depraved we are by nature. With Christ ruling on the earth, with harmony in the animal kingdom between man and animal, with incredible weather, with protracted ages... With Jesus ruling with a rod of iron and not allowing evil to spread, there will be people in their hearts who will say no to Jesus. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed, and he will tempt the nations of those who did not receive Jesus, the children of tribulation saints, and Christ will squash it in a moment's time. And then we step in to a new heaven and a new earth. Chapter 20 ends with the great white throne judgment where all the lost of all time are judged and eternally removed from God's presence into the lake of fire. And then John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem, the place where your loved ones are today who know Jesus, literally actually coming and sitting upon the earth. Now, many of us cannot conceive of anything greater than the kind of things that God said, say, did at the Exodus, or by 10 mighty plagues, he brought the people out, and then how he split the Red Sea in half, and the children of Israel went through on dry ground. Or certainly when we think of the great flood, a real literal flood, that's what Jesus believed, and that's what I believe. I don't believe it was some local flood. It was a worldwide flood. That's what Jesus taught, and I go with Jesus. In either case, We can't conceive of anything more traumatic and more cataclysmic than that. But there is an event in the future that is even greater. This planet that we are sitting on this morning is going to be totally burned and consumed along with all the other planets that shout death. There's no life out there. They shout death because death entered into the universe. And God's going to create a brand new universe, a brand new earth, in which righteousness dwells, and the capital city will come down. So in chapter 21, we spend four messages looking at the New Jerusalem. And up until now, we've just gotten the outside view. But today, we're going to get an inside look of what it is really like. So if you're using your note-taking outline there, John gives us basically three photographic word pictures of the inside of heaven. And again, this is just foundational for the next six messages. He begins with the river of life, the river of life. We read now in verse 1, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. This verse opens with the word then, so it tells us this is the next event followed in the chronology of things. Then he... Who is the he? It assumes you know who the he is. And the antecedent goes back to 21.9, and that goes back to 20, and that goes back to 17. Look back at Revelation 21 and verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we learn in 21.9 that one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls of wrath came and spoke to give him this tour. And if you remember, 
This is the same angel who gave him a tour of another city. Turn back a page or two in your Bible to chapter 17 and verse 1. We're told there the bold judgments are over, and we're told in 17 and verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And if you remember, in chapters 17 and 18, you have a description of the capital city of the Antichrist. God's city is Jerusalem. It's the most mentioned city in all of the Bible. The second most mentioned city in all the Bible is Babylon. That will be the capital city of the devil and his antichrist. In chapter 17, we saw a picture of a one-world religion as the religions of the world are brought together and then exclusively to worship only the antichrist. And then in chapter 18, the political economic controls during that time. And so in 17.1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke. He said, come here and I'll show you the great harlot. What a contrast. Because you see, one city is called the holy city. This is an evil city. One is described as the bride. Not only is the church called the bride, but we learned in the last chapter, the city is called the bride because the two are interconnected. Whereas this city, the devil's city, the antichrist city, it's called the harlot's. And so the closeness of the words between 21.9, which refers to the angel that we're meeting in 22.1, who f- were first introduced to in 17.1, the closeness of the words make it unmistakable that it's the same angel and you're in one of two camps. You are either associated with the true Christ, God's Son, the Lord Jesus is your Savior, or you're identified with Babylon, with the Antichrist. There's no middle ground. And so here in 22.1, we're dealing with the same angel, and he's continuing the tour of the New Jerusalem. Notice the words, then he. Some of your Bibles say the angel, though the word angel is not in the original. That's an interpretive decision that the ESV does. It's just a pronoun, then he showed me, but he's referring to the angel, so they're right in that. Then he showed me. So this, again, is indicating a break in the description in the New Jerusalem. He's going to show him some things that he had not previously shown him. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, if you buy a house today, ever before you show up for the property, you can go online and you can look at the house. They've got drones that will show you what the yard looks like, and unless it's embarrassing to the realtor, they'll typically show you the houses around it or what the neighborhood is like. But not only do you get to see the outside of the house, they'll give you an interior tour. And that's what this angel is doing. Now, he's not selling anything. You can't buy your way to heaven. It's the gift of God. But he's giving John, and by extension, you and I, a picture of what this place, heaven, is like that God wants all of us to go. One teacher was teaching her five-year-old class about heaven and what it takes to get there, and so she decided to test the class one Sunday. She said, if I sold my house and I sold my car, I sold all my furniture at a big garage sale and gave all the money to the church, would that get me to heaven? And all the five-year-olds said, no. 
Then she said, well, if I cleaned the church every day, if I mowed the lawn every week, kept everything here nice and tidy, would that get me into heaven? And all the children in unison said, no. And the teacher thought, these kids are beginning to get it. So then she asked, what if I'm kind to my neighbor and kind to animals, and I give candy to you as children, and I love my husband? Would that help get me into heaven? And all the kids say, said, no. Then she said, then what do I need to do to get into heaven? One little five-year-old boy says, you got to be dead. <laughs> well, he had it right. But there's two exceptions in the Bible. Don't tell me you died and went to heaven because you did not. You may have been light in oxygen, but you didn't die and go to heaven. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So don't buy these nonsensical trash books that even evangelical publishers like Lifeway and Tyndale are producing on heaven. But there are two people who saw heaven and then told us about it. One is the Apostle Paul, and the other is the Apostle John, and they wrote it down for us to learn. Then he, this angel, showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the, or flowing from, as some translations say, the throne of God. Now, there's no reason to take this river purely as symbolic. This clearly is a literal river. But as we will see in the Revelation and throughout the rest of the Scripture, this literal river also has great spiritual and symbolic meaning. Now, out of the throne of God flows this crystal clear water, and how appropriate, because God is holy and pure, and so you'd only expect the clearest of all water. Now, I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of popular books that are being written today on heaven. And unfortunately, many of those books are being written by people who call themselves members of the Reformed faith. Now, if you asked me if I was Reformed, I'd say, of course I am. Just like if you asked me if I was charismatic, I'd say, of course I am. But you see, definition is everything. Some of our brothers have robbed the term charismatic to refer just to the sign gifts. Yet every Christian should be a charismatic Christian and that God gave you at the day of your conversion a gift not one of the sign gifts. Those are no longer being given. But he gave you the gift of teaching or exhortation or mercy or help, some spiritual gift for you to serve in the body of Christ. Likewise, the term reformed has been robbed by some of our brothers who call themselves amillennialists. They believe in replacement theology. They say there's no future for the nation of Israel. And it came out of Augustine into Catholicism, and then some of the men who were saved out of Catholicism like Luther and Calvin and so on. But listen, God's not done with Israel. God used Israel to bring the first coming of the Messiah, and He'll bring them, use them to bring the second coming of the Messiah. So when they come to these passages in the Old Testament, that deal with the promises made to Israel in the kingdom where the Messiah will literally actually reign on the earth? They say, well, that must be heaven. Why? Because in their mind, there is no future for Israel. Now, certainly, there are some parallels between the millennial earth when Jesus rules for a thousand years. The fact that He'll rule is an Old Testament truth. The length of that rule is revealed in the New Testament. There's parallels between his rule on earth and heaven, a lot of parallels, but the two are clearly, clearly different. I mean, think your way through this. Um, we've already learned in Revelation 21 that there's no sea in the new earth. 
And yet when you come to some of the millennial passages in the Old Testament that people say are descriptive of heaven, there is a sea. And so they'll take this paragraph and they'll skip this paragraph and they'll take this one and skip this one. Let me give you an example. The prophets Ezekiel and the prophet Zechariah both describe, by the way, a river, a river during the millennial reign of the Messiah that will flow from a different throne, not the throne in heaven, as we'll see in a moment, but the throne where Jesus will rule on the earth for a thousand years. If you go to Israel and you stand on the Mount of Olives, you see that magnificent 36-acre platform we call the Temple Mount. That's the place that Jesus will rule from. It won't look like that then, I promise you. But there will be a river that will flow from the Temple Mount. The Bible teaches all the way down to the Dead Sea. Let me read, for instance, a passage from Ezekiel. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. For the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. Now, this is not some temple in heaven. As you read that chapter, go home and read the whole thing. It's the Temple Mount, and there's a river that comes from it. Then he said to me in verse 8, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. That's where the Dead Sea is. Then they go toward the sea. Speaking of the Dead Sea, also called the Salt Sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from Engedi to uh, any gleam. Those are two towns, so to speak, along the Dead Sea. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. Now, this is not a prophecy of heaven. How do we know? It can't be. Revelation 21.1 says, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sea. Now, that doesn't mean there's not water. It doesn't mean there won't be beautiful beaches, but salt is a corrosive product, and for whatever reason, in the providence of God, there is not going to be a sea like we know it today. But here in this millennial earth, there is going to be a river that will flow from the Temple Mount all the way down to the Dead Sea. Now, here's a picture of the Dead Sea, and it looks very white where the waters receded because they're using the waters of the Jordan to irrigate so much of Israel. The sea is shrinking in many ways. And that white around there is not waves or foam. That's salt. That is pure salt. The Dead Sea is 8.6 times saltier than any sea in the ocean. The salinity is so great, there's no animals anywhere around here. There's no life in the Dead Sea, not even microscopic life. Now, there have been a few places where some holes have been dug and fresh water has filled it, and there has been some small traces of life, but in the sea itself, absolutely nothing can live. And here is a photo that caught my attention on one trip. I mean, just these massive amounts of salt just kind of build themselves up. And they create these little mini sea mountains, so to speak. This has never been fulfilled where the water from the Temple Mount going all the way to the Dead Sea is going to make that sea so alive, a place where nothing lives, where men will fish in it and dry their nets along the shores. How did God fulfill the prophecy for the first coming? Literally. 
So you can't pick and choose. Some of the passages in so many of these books on heaven have nothing to do with heaven. They have everything to do with the reign of the Messiah. So here we are, back in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Notice clear. It's the Greek word krustalos. There's words that we transliterate where you take the original and the sound and you put it directly into English. Like in the first service we baptized, baptizo, so ba, be, and so forth. And you transliterate it. And some words perfectly transliterate. This one near perfect, crystalos, we get our word crystal from it. In other words, this mighty river coming, not from the Temple Mount, but the throne of God in heaven is sparkling, it's shimmering, it's crystal clear. Second, John notes the river originates from the throne of God. He showed me a river of the water coming or flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, that's interesting because back in the original creation in the Garden of Eden, Moses wrote, now a river flowed out of Eden to the water to water the garden. God was in Eden. He had a river that flowed there. Then during the millennial kingdom, we just read of a river that will flow from the throne room on the Temple Mount from which the Messiah will rule and reign. And now here in the throne room of God, there is a river. Now, many of you have stood like I have at the mighty Mississippi River, and it's somewhat breathtaking. One dear brother back there told me he floated down the Colorado River. I've always wanted to see the Amazon River, But like many of you, I've been to the bottom of the Niagara in that little boat they take you out on, and the mighty power of that water just rushing and tumulting down there into that river is just breathtaking. But I want to tell you, this literal river that we are reading of today, there's absolutely nothing like it on earth. If you remember when we studied the outside of this city, God gave us some dimensions of what the city will be like. Let me give you a comparison on this next picture. If you remember over there in the far right, I gave you a picture of it earlier in full. That's supposed to represent the tallest building in the world, 2,717 feet there in Dubai. Then to the left of that, that's supposed to represent the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, 29,029 feet above sea level. You take the tallest building in the world, you take the tallest mountain in the world, and you put it next to the tallest city in the world, the New Jerusalem, which goes 15 miles high into the sky. It's breathtaking. And we examined and thought a little bit in our last study on heaven just about the greatness of God's creation. And how big it is and how vast it is when they took that Hummel telescope and shot it out into space. What Einstein thought was true, they saw with the naked eye. Billions of universes, so to speak. Galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy. And so God is a great God. And while the universe today shouts death, Because sin has entered into it, God is going to make a new universe. And the new Jerusalem, this mighty city, 15 miles high in the sky. And from the top of the throne where God is, the water will cascade down and down and down. This will be so spectacular, so magnificent. When I was in college, I visited a few of the national parks. I haven't seen them all, but I saw a few that I wanted to see. And it was some of the most breathtaking and beautiful scenery I've ever seen anywhere on the planet. 
But I want to tell you that even though Psalm 19 says the, the, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the works of his hands are an expression of his greatness, we haven't seen anything yet. We live in a fallen creation and even the most magnificent scene you can lay your eyes upon will not compare to what God is going to create or what he has created and what you will see. The psalmist centuries before speaking of this river wrote, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She'll not be moved. Now, beyond the physical side of this river, there's a spiritual dimension to it. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so the water of life is emblematic throughout the Old and in the Revelation of living water, of spiritual life that God gives his people. And so how magnificent that water in one of the emblems for the Spirit is not only oil and fire, but water, that he would have water flowing from his throne. And so as you read the prophets, you discover that they use water as a picture of salvation. For instance, in Isaiah 55 in verse 1, God invites his people to drink. He says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And knowing our need, Isaiah then says, why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Some of you this morning would do well to listen to what Isaiah says because you're drinking from the wrong watering holes and you're eating from the wrong troughs. And God wants you to come to the bread of life. And by the Spirit of God, he wants to give you living water. Hold your finger here and turn to another book that this man wrote, the Gospel of John, and go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 for a moment. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. And Christ meets a woman at a place called Jacob's Well. A few months ago, I stood there before the group came over and uh, you're in a little town called Nablus, and, and you look down, and there's Jacob's Well, and not 50 yards from it, it's a Class A archaeological spot. No doubt, did it happen here? Did it happen near here? No, it happened right there. There's Jacob's Well, and there's Joseph's tomb buried just 50 yards away. And it was, and, and this is, by the way, the same place. It's called in the Old Testament Shechem, when Abraham had traveled 1,100 miles, not knowing where he was going except that God would show him. When he ends up in Shechem, God appeared to him. It all happened in this one little location. And here the Lord meets this Samaritan woman, a member of a despised race. Look at verse uh, 10 of this chapter. Jesus answered and he said to this woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this woman obviously did not know whom she was speaking to because Jesus said if she knew whom she was speaking to, she would have asked him for the gift of God, which is described here as a kind of water. If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? Well, Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Tonight, a new season on Awana begins. 
And I fear some of us are just too lazy on Sunday nights to bring our children back. Look, there's a lot that's vying for your child's heart today. Evil is walking into some of your homes, and evil is getting in through the internet in some of the hearts of your kids. You need to protect them from that, but more than that, you need to feed them with truth. Some of you could use this as a date night tonight, and some of your ladies would appreciate that. But for instance, they memorize Romans 6.23. But not only do they memorize the verse, they memorize the meaning to the verse. What is a wage? They have to learn the definition. What is sin? What is death? What is eternal life? And you'll get this scripture deep into the hearts of your children. The free gift of God is eternal life. So here is the eternal God offering eternal life described here as living water. And the syntax in Greek, the emphasis is on living. Paraphrase, he would have offered you water, I mean the living kind. And it's important for us to understand how the Bible uses living water because it's used to describe a relationship a personal relationship that God wants to have with you this morning. Put out in the margin next to verse 10, Jeremiah 2, 3. Jeremiah 2 and verse 3. Let me read to you from the prophet Jeremiah. God says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to you for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the people in Jeremiah's day had forsaken God for idols, and God compares them in this verse, their idolatry to exchanging fresh living water for the stagnant, leaking cisterns that they had created. And of course, John will write in chapter 22 and verse 1, he compares the relationship you have when you're saved to living water. And so the trades that Satan will try to convince you to make, to take the stagnant, polluted waters of the world for the fresh living water that God wants you to know this morning. And this Samaritan woman is a classic example. She was looking for love in all the wrong places, married five times, and she was on her sixth guy. She wanted joy and happiness and so the Lord is trying to teach her that what water is to your body, I want to be to your spirit. And of course, there's a double entendre here. And the Samaritan woman, understandably, is somewhat confused. And so Jesus says in verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. Now listen to verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to life eternal, to eternal life. To paraphrase, whoever drinks of this material water, anything the world has to offer you, you'll get thirsty and thirsty and thirsty again. You'll always be looking for the next high to satisfy. But whoever takes just one drink of this water... He'll never thirst again. Oh, the cheap substitutes that the devil offers for God's living water. And I believe this morning in what I am preaching because I've been to that living water and I am a satisfied customer. I want to tell you that he will satisfy the deepest depths of your heart where you'll only want more of him. 
And so he speaks of a well of water springing up to eternal life. And yet the world will offer you its water. And I want to tell you, if your heart this morning is only for the water of the world, it means you've never been to Jesus. If your heart clamors after what the world has to offer, you've never met him. Because your life takes on a new direction when you are born from above. In John 7, put that out in the margin, John 7, 36, and let me just read it to you. It's a particular holiday, a festival in Israel's history, and it's a sermon in itself, and I've preached the whole gospel of John. You might want to listen to that message. But on the last day of that great feast, Jesus stood up and he said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom John says was not yet given because Christ had not yet been glorified. So just like in Revelation 22 and verse 1, there is a literal river cascading from the throne of God. It is representative and emblematic of the Spirit of God, who is the water of life. Now go back to Revelation 22 and verse 1. We learn that this living water, termed here the water of life, as we've just seen, is symbolic of the new birth of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of you. In fact, three times in these two chapters, the water of life is mentioned. The first time is in 21.6. Let me refresh your mind. God the Father there says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, that's a title that the Father takes to himself. But before we are done with this chapter, we will see, as we saw in chapter 1, that is a title the Son takes to himself. They take the same title. Why? Because to see the Son is to see the Father there equal. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And then when we come to chapter 22, verse 17, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And here in our verse, he showed me the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And so while someday we will literally actually see this river flowing from the throne of God that is emblematic of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture... You can taste of this water today if you will come to Christ, and He will satisfy the deepest needs of your heart. And by the way, while we're here, this is a great Trinitarian picture, because as the chapter goes on, and we'll study it when we come to the 16th and 17th verses, where living water is emblematic of God the Holy Spirit, you also find here two other members here in this throne room, coming out from the throne of God, that's the Father, and of the Lamb. That's the Son. Now, until now, when mentioning the Father and the Son, John has distinguished the Father from the Son who sits on the throne. So if you remember, in chapter 5 and verse 13, we studied in every created thing, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory. No mention of Jesus on the throne. Or in Revelation 6.16, we examined it in detail. And they said to the mountains, these people who are alive during the tribulation and seen the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, fall on us 
and hide us from the presence of him, that's the Father, who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is not on the throne in that verse. Or again in Revelation 7 and verse 10, we're told, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God, that's the Father who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But now in Revelation 22 and verse 1, he puts both of them on the throne. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Two persons sitting on the throne, emblematically a third person. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God, whether it's Deuteronomy 6 or 1 Timothy 2 or James 2. God is one. Three and one, our kids sing. Three and one. Man in his finiteness cannot totally grasp it. But the truth is, is that the infinite God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Again, this is foundational. We'll explain it in more detail. You've got to be here for the next six messages. Now, beyond the river of life, I want us to think about the tree of life, the tree of life. Connecting verse 1 with verse 2, and you've got to do that. Don't let the verse divisions distract you. There's a flow of thought. Then he showed me a river in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So please don't miss the image. The picture here is of this wide street with this river running down the middle of the street. And there is this tree of life that somehow extends on either side. I, I pictured it as a, a double-rooted tree with a gigantic canopy that goes across this river. And it's called the tree of life. Now, someone called me one day on the Bible line several years ago, and they said, is this a literal tree here in Revelation and in Genesis? Or is this a figurative tree? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is a literal tree. And yes, it is figurative. It is symbolic of something very, very important. Now, unless God simply uses some metaphorical expression or some figure of speech like it's like this or it's like such and such, then you apply the basic rules of Hebrew and Greek grammar. You take it as literal. And so some have suggested this is not a literal tree. But that would violate the basic rules of Hebrew and Greek grammar, not to mention the first time we're introduced to this tree. Hold your finger here and go all the way back to the first book in the Bible. Go back to the book of Genesis chapter 2 for a moment. You'll be glad you turned there. Genesis chapter 2. All the way back to Genesis 2. Don't look at me. Turn to your Bible. Go there. It will be helpful to you. Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to see the first mention of this tree. We're told in Genesis 2, and look, if you will, now at verse 8, the Lord God planted a tree toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So evidently, Adam had already been formed from the ground, and he was originally set west of the Garden of Eden before God planted him in this particular spot with these special trees that were in it. And so the first mention of the tree of life is found here in verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Now, I hope you remembered what happened. Look over at chapter 3 and verse 1. We're told, now the serpent, that's the devil, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, Eve could have just turned around and and ended that dialogue with the devil, but instead she entertains the devil. Now, where is Adam? He's here, but he's not acting like a man, and that's the problem today. We have so many men who are not acting like men, and we have allowed the evangelical church to be feminized. We have removed women from the high and holy role that he has given them as mothers in the home, and we're making them preachers and teachers of the Word of God over men, and we're violating basic Scripture. And whenever you reverse roles, you open yourself up to grave deception. So here's Eve. She could have, she could have and should have quoted precisely what God had revealed to Adam. Or he should have stepped up and he should have said, Mr. Devil, from any tree of the garden, God said, you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So Mr. Devil, why don't you get lost? But that's not how Eve deals with the temptation. She should have quoted scripture. And that's what Jesus does. That's why your kids need to be in Awana. You need to get them there. Go out on a date for two hours. Get your kids in Awana. Get the Word of God into their heart. Use that little booklet during the week to instruct them and to help them. And so the devil puts a question mark after the Word of God in verse 1. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You can almost hear a sneer in the inference that he is making. You have to understand, Eve... God is not here to bless you. God is here to withhold from you. God has not come to enrich you. God has come to rob you. He doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he knows that if you do, you will be fulfilled like him. Go ahead, the devil will say today. Have a little wine with your pizza. Have a little shot of whiskey at the end of the day. It will relax you. It will make you feel good. Go ahead and watch that sensual movie tonight. Visit that pornographic internet site because it will make you tingle and it will make you feel sensual inside. It will be tantalizing. And the devil has convinced us that God is holding out on us and that we've been gypped. There was only one tree they could not eat from. And that's the tree that the devil exploited and pointed to. And so the devil would have you to believe today that the world out there, they're having all the fun and you're getting gypped. And then I get a five-part email this morning at 5 a.m. in the morning of some dear wife pouring her heart out over her husband who's living wickedly, ruining another family. Look what verse 22 says. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Did God want Adam and Eve to know good and evil? Yes, but how? By revelation, by what he revealed, not by experience. God doesn't by experience know evil. He is pure, he is holy. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's like God stops in the middle of a sentence. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden, he stationed cherubim. In Hebrew, there's a singular, there's a dual, and there's a plural for three or more. This is a dual. Two angels called cherubim, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Listen, if Adam had passed the test of obedience, it would not be by magic, but by choosing by faith God's way, he would have lived forever, and everyone downstream from Adam would have been pure. But we sinned in and with Adam, Romans 5 says, and so now everyone downstream of Adam is fallen and evil, and he lost his right and the graciousness of God to eat from the tree of life because had he eaten from it now in his fallen state, he would become like the angels, unredeemable. So God placed armed guards, the cherubim and the flaming sword, a symbol of God's wrath and protection. Now go back to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, back to the end of the Bible. Revelation 22 and look at verse Two, if you will. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Now, at the time of the great flood, it appears the tree of life disappears from the earth. But now it reappears here in heaven in the Father's house. And this tree, which John sees, we're told, bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And Greek students and scholars unanimously agree that there are 12 different kinds of fruit each month. And if they're exchanged every month, potentially there's 144 different kinds of fruit that are represented here. And this, of course, is different from the old creation, where fruit is seasonal, depending where you live on the planet. Here, every month, there is fruit. And so what God once forbade, he now invites us to put out in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 22 and verse 7. Revelation 22, 7. Let me remind you what Jesus promised the saints in the churches in verse 7 of that chapter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and all true believers we learned are overcomers, to him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so John is able to see on either side of the river was his tree bearing 12 different kinds of fruit every month of the year. So here in this main boulevard, you have a river running down the center, a tree of life probably like a canopy going across on either side with all these fruits. When we were growing up, um, my, my dad cared for literally hundreds of priests and nuns in his eye practice and never charged them a dime. And every Christmas, they would send us all kinds of stuff. And one of the things that they did every single year is we were, as a family, a member of the Fruit of the Month Club. And every month, they would send this box of fruit. And I thought, well, someday maybe I'll join the Fruit of the Month, but I I don't like fruit that much. In either case, I know I will in heaven, especially God's fruit. But I'll tell you, there's going to be a lot of fruit in heaven. And it's going to be the most luscious, delicious. I love a good peach. You know, you just bite into it and it just drips down your face. It is so good. People have asked me, will we eat in heaven? Of course we will. Our body will be like Jesus. What did he do in his resurrected body? In John 21, Luke 21, 
He eats. We'll eat in heaven. Abraham, when he meets some angels, one of whom is God himself, the angel of the Lord, he has a meal. And of course, we've already studied the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will sit down with Jesus. Furthermore, we're told here in verse 2, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, major question, for what reason will the nations need healing? I should say, parenthetically, that you will hear some really wacko stuff on this verse. But remember, while we may not always know what a verse does mean, we can usually definitively say what it doesn't mean. So some guy mailed me his commentary on Revelation, and in it, and it's not a unique view to him, he said that the nations are for people who are in natural bodies during the millennial reign of Christ, and every month they need to eat from this tree to sustain themselves in heaven. I know it doesn't mean that. Why? Because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. It is clear that no one will be able to walk on the streets of gold unless they have a body designed for that. This mortal must put on immortality. Now, the word healing is the Greek word therapeia. It almost comes directly into English as therapy. And healing, in an earthly sense, is obviously not needed in heaven. Why? We've learned there's no sickness in heaven. For instance, we learned in Revelation 21 and verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. So the leaves of the tree of life symbolize a certain refreshment, a healing-like blessing. In fact, the root word means something that ministers to you. Somehow, I don't know precisely, and so I'm not going to go beyond with what the Scripture says, but somehow, for us in our resurrected body, these leaves are going to be a blessing to God's people. Johnny Erickson Tata spoke one day to a group of people in a class who were mentally handicapped Christians. And by the way, some people with Down syndrome are just as responsible before the living God as someone without it. I've met people with Down syndrome, some, who are obviously not accountable. They just don't have it up here. They're like an infant. I've met others who are living immoral, wicked lives by choice. And I've met others who are some of the most spiritual, godly, perceptive people I've ever met. One precious woman in our church, she brought her wagon in with, I don't know, 30 notebooks of Scripture that she's been copying for the last decade. Entire books of the Bible. She's got more in tune with the living God than many of us do. But she was talking to them about someday she'll get a resurrected body. You know she's a quadriplegic as she jumped there in the Chesapeake Bay and hit a rock. And since the age of 18, from the neck down, she's been paralyzed. She was talking about her new body that someday she would get. And then she was telling this group of born-again Down syndrome challenge people that someday they would get a new mind and they all broke out in applause. Hey, this is a great place that God has for his people. It's a magnificent place. We will be in a resurrected body. We won't need any healing or any fixing up, whatever this fruit is for and these leaves are for. 
It will be purely for a blessing, but not for any fixing. There's a third picture beyond the river of life and the tree of life. Quickly, as we close, there's the light of life. There's the light of life. Look now at verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. As if to remind us that the fall will never be able to repeat itself, he says there will no longer be any curse. Heaven will be sin-free. It will be a perfect place. The curse will be forever removed. And as you study Genesis, and I have a whole message on this, the four results that the curse brought, that sin brought, four consequences. One, the curse brought death. The day you eat from this fruit, you will die. And so Adam died that day on the inside. Now we're born dying on the outside. And if the problem's not fixed, we will die forever in eternity. Second, sin that brought the curse brought pain into the world. There was no pain prior to the fall. And so God said to Eve, in pain you shall bring forth children. And many women can say amen to that. They know it. The third thing that the sin brought through the curse was sorrow. God said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree from which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, curse is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Fourth, with the curse it brought toil. And so in toil you shall eat, and from the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread. But John says, there'll no longer now be any curse. And we studied in Revelation 21 and verse 4, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning, crying, pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. And so when John thinks of the curse, who does he think? He thinks of the lamb who solved the problem. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. The four consequences that the curse brought, Jesus fixed. Do you remember in Luke twenty-two forty-four, he's in Gethsemane and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood. It's called hematidrosis where you're under such pressure, literally the capillaries under your skin burst and you sweat blood falling down to the ground. The lamb in agony, in toil over your redemption and mine, he sweat blood. The Messiah also experienced sorrow. Isaiah said, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The lamb with grief and sorrow as he walked through this life as a holy person dealt with the curse. The Bible also tells us that Jesus experienced the pain of the curse and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And then the text says later in the chapter, so he, Pilate, then handed him over to them to be crucified. The lamb suffered the pain of the curse on his head as he wore a symbol of the curse and as the nails were put through his hands and feet, and he physically, literally, spiritually died. There will no longer be any curse because the lamb paid the curse in full by becoming a curse for us. Now, once again, the place of God's authority 
the place of God's sovereignty, the place of God's dominion will be seen by every believer in heaven to its fullness, such that the Bible says, and his bondservants will serve him. We will serve him. Understand, work was not a result of the curse. Adam worked before the fall. We will work, though, without the consequences of the curse. And the verse 4 says, and they will see his face. We will see the face of the Lord Jesus, whom the Bible says is the image of the invisible God. In heaven, your relationship with God will be as close as you can ever imagine, as you will ever experience. There will be greater and more intimate fellowship as you will see the Lord face to face. Adam hid himself with his sin. Moses, one of the most godly of three men that God pronounces on the earth, he only saw God's back. But we will see him face to face, and he will brand on our heads, the text says. His name will be on our foreheads. The Antichrist marks his own with the 666, but God will mark his own. And then the incredible statement repeated again in verse 5, and there will be no longer any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine it, and they will reign forever and ever. The presence of God will be so great that Malachi compares the S-O-N to the S-U-N, and we will reign forever and ever. Now, I don't know where you're at today, but I do know when I read verses like this, I know the best is yet to come. I am better able to understand what Paul said in Romans 8.18 when he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Contrary to the prosperity theologians of our day that tell you that this present time, this life now is the best, how wrong they are. The best is yet to come. Paul says, I consider, the King James says, I reckon. It's a mathematical term, legizomai. It means to count. And so Paul says, on one side of the ledger, I put all the heartache and all the disappointment and all the pain and all the sickness and all the suffering. And on the other side of the ledger, I put the glories to come. And there's no comparison. They don't even compare because we haven't seen anything yet. You can bank on that. And God uses setting your mind on the things above, especially to these seven persecuted churches, as an impetus to press on. I remember walking with my brother Richard to grammar school one day. I was in kindergarten. He was in sixth grade. It was six below zero. My mother didn't drive a car. My dad would leave for surgery at 6 a.m. And we walked to school and we had those hats on. And we thought, oh, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. And somehow we could bear the cold and the heavy wind that day because we knew that there was a school that was warm on the inside. And listen, I don't care what you are going through today, what struggle you may be facing. Set your mind on the things that are above because it doesn't even compare what God is yet to reveal to us. 
Now, I may have misinterpreted in some of the minute details of this book, but I can tell you one thing for sure. Jesus is coming, and he is going to take us to a home in heaven that he's prepared for us. Think about that. If there were a place on earth where no one ever got sick, if there were a place on earth where there was no crime, no rape, no murder, no trial, no death, wouldn't you want to go there? You can go there if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So is it there? If it's not there, it's because you've not yet believed. But it can be there. And if you die without your name being there, you will die for an eternity in a place that God didn't make for you. A place God made for the devil and his angels. A place that in one sense you will be trespassing in. But in a place that God in his perfect righteousness and holiness will separate you from himself forever and ever and ever. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your word. What joy it is to read it, to meditate on it, to let these truths get deep into our hearts. I pray today, Father, for someone within the sound of my voice here and one of our other campuses, someone live streaming, and they're not really sure that heaven is their home, that if this were their last day on earth, that they would spend an eternity there with the Lord Jesus. Help them to know that Jesus paid it all, that whoever, therefore, will call on his name will be instantly and forever saved but help them to see that it is their rebellion, their own lordship and control over self, wanting to live life their way to do their own thing that will keep them out of heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you offer living water that satisfies the deepest needs of the human heart. May we not be swayed by the cheap substitutes of the God of this world, Satan, who is energizing the sons of disobedience and offering to us cheap substitutes. Help us to watch over our hearts with all diligence because you said, from it flow the very rivers of life. Father, we love you and we thank you that our salvation was not cheap, but it was bought with the precious blood of the Lamb in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here and you have a public decision of some kind to make, if you've never openly confessed Jesus as Lord, that's an important act. It doesn't save you, but Jesus taught if you are saved, you'll do it. If you've not been baptized, we had a lady in the last service. She said, I've not been baptized since I've been saved. She did it as a young girl, but she was lost. Now she wants to do it as a saved person. You do it after you're saved as an emblem of the death, burial, and resurrection. Maybe you're here and you need a church home. You're saved. You've been baptized. But you need a church where you can serve and worship. We need you if you want to make a difference for the glory of Jesus. So as Matt leads us, if you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.